It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, May 8th. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. Tonight, the California Report heads to the U.S.-Mexico border to look at a newly created mobile app designed to streamline the asylum-seeking process. And today's National Native News centers around the Montana Indian Child Welfare Act. Then we'll look at your local news with a special focus on Wednesday's upcoming Nevada County Planning Commission meeting over the reopening of the Idaho-Maryland mine. And we remember Ken Getz, well-known member of the Nevada County theater community and co-founder of Sierra Stages, who passed away unexpectedly in his sleep on May 1st. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. California communities are increasingly turning to tiny homes to provide shelter for unhoused residents. But could they also be an affordable housing option for people who want to downsize from their traditional homes? Cap Radio's Chris Nichols has that story. It's very open. It has windows. It has the original shipping container doors, French doors. It never feels small to me. Robin Davis lives in a shipping container turned tiny home on wheels. At 160 square feet, it's just enough space for a bed, kitchen, and bathroom, but not much else. It has all the amenities of a traditional larger home, just mini. Davis downsized from a 1,200 square foot home several years ago. She's part of a growing movement urging cities across California to loosen their zoning rules and allow people to live in tiny homes. And I'm healthy, I work remote, I I don't need that much. So why not allow people like me and others to, to have this option? Andrea Aus is with the city of West Sacramento. She says right now, Davis is technically violating city codes. But given California's affordable housing shortage, Aus says the city is exploring how it might accommodate this tiny home and others. This is why we're raising the question to the community and council to do a check-in to determine, is this appropriate? In the meantime, Davis says she's committed to living in her non-traditional home. Bathroom on the far right. Uh, has a compost toilet, a shower. And fighting for others to do the same. For the California Report, I'm Chris Nichols in Sacramento. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners with more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from HintWater.com. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes 11th-hour racing, working to connect sustainability with sport to help restore ocean health. On the web at 11thHourRacing.org. The Biden administration is preparing for an influx of migrants seeking asylum as a Trump-era policy is scheduled to be lifted this week. In an attempt to streamline the asylum-seeking process, the administration created CBP-1. It's a mobile app that is supposed to help asylum seekers enter the United States. And with more migrants entering the country, this app could play an even bigger role at the border. But KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis says the app isn't helping those who need it most. Every morning... Hundreds of people living in Tijuana's Agape Migrant Shelter stare anxiously into their phones, 
They're logging into a mobile phone app that schedules appointments for asylum seekers hoping to enter the U.S. Me ha tocado ver personas gritar de alegría, otros llorar también de felicidad, porque pues por fin están logrando lo que necesitan. Vidal Garcia is one of them. He says that he's seen people break down in tears of joy after finally getting one of the coveted appointments. Since January, about 15,000 migrants in Tijuana have secured appointments through the CBP-1 mobile app. But most of those appointments haven't gone to people like Garcia. Almost half of them have gone to Russian nationals, even though they make up less than 10% of Tijuana's migrant population. That's according to numbers from the Mexican government. This is a huge racial and economic disparity, says Enrique Lucero. He's head of Tijuana's Migrant Affairs Department. Entonces, como no hay un filtro para determinar quién es vulnerable o quién es más vulnerable que el otro, eso ha sido, yo creo, la, la mayor falla de la aplicación. Lucero says that CBP-1 does not give preference to more vulnerable migrants. In fact, it rewards those with newer smartphones and more powerful Wi-Fi connections. That means it rewards the Russian war refugees. The majority of them can afford airfare to Mexico. They tend to stay in hotels with strong Wi-Fi signals. Meanwhile, Central American migrants walk to Tijuana, sleep in overcrowded migrant shelters, and struggle to use the app on their outdated phones. Tienen mejor teléfono, no, un iPhone o un Samsung. Tienen mejor conectividad porque no es lo mismo estar mil personas en un albergue conectado todos a la misma vez que estar en tu hotel cuatro personas. Lucero says that CBP-1 doesn't distinguish a Russian migrant from a Central American one. That leaves migrants like Garcia on the outside looking in. He's been living in the migrant shelter for more than a month with his two siblings, their partners, and four nephews. He's not resentful of the Russian war refugees. He actually feels solidarity with all asylum seekers. When I see people uh, crying or, or jumping because they're happy, I feel the, the same uh, emotion because I'm happy about them, because I wish them uh, the best. But <laughs> then I get in the office and start to cry. Sometimes, not all the time, but... Pastor Albert Rivera runs the Agape Migrant Shelter. Every morning, he sees the migrants desperately logging into CVP-1. And he says this happens all along the border. All at the same time, trying to enter in one place, so it gets over jammed. Rivera recently invested in a stronger Wi-Fi connection, but says that it's still not enough. And he's not an open borders guy. Rivera knows that the U.S. cannot let everybody into the country without vetting them. We cannot uh, say, okay, we're just interested in security and forget about human rights. And we cannot say, okay, we only are interested in human rights but are forgetting about security. But to the migrants waiting for appointments in Tijuana, the entire system seems really off balance. For The California Report, I'm Gustavo Solis in Tijuana. After an inquiry from KPBS, CBP announced changes to the app on Friday. The agency will expand the number of appointments and prioritize people who have been waiting the longest. These changes will start this week. We're coming up on the end of the first week of the Hollywood writers' strike, and there is still no talks between studios and unions representing writers. But in an act of solidarity, some businesses in Los Angeles are offering discounts to writers on strike. 
The discounts range from 10% off a sandwich to three-month memberships at Jiu-Jitsu Studios. They just have to show their Writers Guild of America card. You can find the running list of businesses on Twitter at Deanna Shoemaker. That's D-E-A-N-N-A-S-H-U Maker. And that's the California Report for Monday, May 8th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Today's National Native News centers around the Montana Indian Child Welfare Act. However, as the bill passes in both chambers of the state, a federal version of the policy is being challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court. Details ahead. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. The American Indian College Fund is releasing three briefs with findings from a three-part research project conducted in 2020 and 2021 on tribal colleges and universities. The focus of the research includes student support services, program development and review, and sustainability in tribal colleges and universities. TCUs are unique higher learning institutions located on or near Indian reservations. There were four major themes identified in the study around academic program development, the preferred term participants use when discussing post-secondary credentialing or quality assurance practices. TCUs use a four-step process similar to mainstream colleges when developing new academic programs, planning, internal review, external review, and program implementation. The American Indian College Fund has been the nation's largest charity supporting Native higher education for over 30 years. The College Fund believes, quote, education is the answer and provided over $14 million in scholarships and other direct student support to American Indian students in 2021 and 2022. Since its founding in 1989, the College Fund has provided more than $280 million in scholarships, programs, community, and tribal college support. Montana ended its legislative session passing a bill guiding the removal and placement of Native American children in cases of adoption and foster care. Montana Public Radio's Ellis Julin has more on changes made with and without support of tribal lawmakers. The bill creates the Montana Indian Child Welfare Act, or MICWA. The policy builds on existing federal law regarding removal of Native American children and prioritizes placing them into the homes of family members or other tribal members. Over a dozen other states have passed statewide ICWA policies to increase guidelines for child placement, and they've all seen decreased rates of Native children in state custody as a result. Montana's rate of Native children in foster care is nearly four times higher than the rate of Caucasian children. Patrick Yawaki, a lobbyist for the Blackfeet Nation, said by expanding on the federal policy, MICWA would fill gaps in the system. With Montana ICWA and law, we can work to fix a broken system in the state and provide that the tribal children retain tribal identity and culture and heal intergenerational traumas that exist when Native children are removed from their homes. As Montana moves forward with the policy, a federal version is being challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court by those who say it gives preferential treatment based on race. The Montana bill contains a provision that will keep it in place regardless of the outcome of the federal case. Tribal lawmakers pushed back on an addition to the state bill that would sunset the policy in 2025. Supporters of the policy's limited run say it will give lawmakers a chance to revisit it next legislative session. But opponents say it will disrupt the lives of children and families in the system. The bill passed as amended out of both chambers. Montana's legislative session has now ended, and the bill awaits final approval by the governor. For National Native News, I'm Ellis Julin. A senior paralegal and tribal criminal jurisdiction coordinator for the Yurok tribe in Northern California, Alana Nolf, spent years working on missing and murdered Indigenous people cases in the region. Native News Online reports that after the tribe's own Emily Rissling went missing in October of 2021, Nolf decided that she needed to take even more direct action in the face of what she felt was helplessness. 
Nulf took it upon herself to earn a Part 107 remote pilot certification from the Federal Aviation Administration in February this year. The license is required to operate drones for search and rescue missions. For the Iraq program, Nelf has acquired two high-powered drones with a range of additional tools to help search and rescue efforts. The drones are also equipped with a payload delivery system that could deliver water, food, and other necessities to people awaiting rescue, and could provide light to first responders tending to a wounded person. The drone program will become part of the Yurok tribe's comprehensive response to one of the largest crises facing Indian country. According to a 2022 Congressional Research Service report, there were 9,560 cases involving missing and murdered Indigenous people in 2020 alone. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at your local news. Nevada County officials are gearing up for one of the most anticipated public meetings in recent history. Wednesday, May 10th, we'll see the Nevada County Planning Commission consider the reopening of the Idaho-Maryland mine by Rise Grass Valley Incorporated. The day is expected to draw crowds to the Eric Rood Administrative Center in Nevada City, the site where the commission convenes. Nevada County planning staff released a report on the proposed reopening of the Idaho-Maryland mine project in advance of the planning commission hearing with recommendations and action items for the commission to consider regarding Rise Grass Valley's plans. According to the Union of Grass Valley, the staff's conclusions recommend that, quote, the Board of Supervisors certify the final environmental impact report as adequate for the Idaho-Maryland mine project and that it has been completely in compliance with the California Environmental Quality Act. However, options to rezone the site for mining or mineral extraction from, quote, light industrial were rejected by staff in the report. Quote, the project as proposed can also be found to be inconsistent with several of the Nevada County General Plan goals and policies, the staff report states. Some of those inconsistencies are in regard to approval of a variance that will allow for the construction of several structures up to a height of 165 feet. Approval of a permit for the project is not recommended by the planning staff. Ralph Silberstein, president of the Community Environmental Advocates Foundation, says if the environmental impact report is approved, it could remain as a precedent for future mine developers, even if Rise Gold gives up and goes away. Depending on how things go on Wednesday, the Planning Commission could pivot away from the staff's recommendations and approve Rise Grass Valley Inc. and the EIR, or reject both. County staff have made Thursday, May 11th available for the meeting if the allotted time frame for comments on May 10th is exceeded. The public hearing on May 10th is scheduled from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and will focus on the staff's recommendations to the Planning Commission. 
Nevada County's website says, quote, all community members will be given the opportunity to address the Planning Commission. Each speaker will be given up to three minutes of public comment. To provide public comment, attendees will be asked to get a number from staff outside the supervisor's chambers. Public commenters will be provided their opportunity on a first-come, first-served basis beginning at 8.30 a.m. The commission will then make a recommendation to the Board of Supervisors regarding the proposed Idaho-Maryland mine Rise Grass Valley project. This reported by the Union of Grass Valley. Now let's take a look at your local forecast from the National Weather Service. It may be hard to believe, but sunshine is just around the corner. According to the National Weather Service, conditions across Northern California are predicted to shift after Wednesday. Days will be both warmer and drier than normal for mid-May. The Sacramento Bee says the state capitol is forecast to see a 20-degree increase in temperatures between today and Friday. But the question on everyone's mind remains, is the warm weather here to stay? Sacramento-based National Weather Service meteorologist Scott Rowe says the warm weather will hang around until early next week. So, the short answer, probably not. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Climate Prediction Center released a statement claiming May could bring above-normal rainfall and chilly weather to parts of Northern California. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 40 degrees. Tuesday, partly sunny with a high near 63. Tuesday night will be mostly cloudy, then gradually becoming clear with a low around 41 degrees. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight partly cloudy with a low around 26 degrees. Winds could gust as high as 25 miles per hour. Tuesday, mostly cloudy with a high near 52. A small chance of showers and thunderstorms after 5 p.m. with snow levels rising to 7,200 feet in the afternoon. Tuesday night will see snow levels lower to 6,400 feet. It'll be mostly cloudy with a low around 27 degrees. The National Weather Service has issued a lake wind advisory for Lake Tahoe, in effect until 8 p.m. this evening. Strong winds will create three-foot waves on the lake. Small boats, kayaks, and paddleboards should remain off of lake waters. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight increasing clouds with a low around 49 degrees. Tuesday, partly sunny with a high near 73. Tuesday night will be mostly clear with a low around 48 degrees. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. We close tonight remembering Ken Getz, well-known member of the Nevada County Theater community and co-founder of Sierra Stages, who passed away unexpectedly in his sleep on May 1st. Getz spoke with KVMR's Psy Musiker and Joyce Miller back in March on their program Curtain Call. Peter Mason and Ken Getz launched Sierra Stages back in 2009, and the small company quickly became one of the best community theaters in California or at least the foothills, my opinion, producing well-directed dramas and comedies and musicals like last summer's production of Sweeney Todd, and it was always with local talent. And then the two men, husband and husband, seemed to just, poof, disappear. <laughs> yeah. Actually, they moved away to Squim, Washington. Mostly, we had just gotten weary of the, the yearly summer smoke fire super hot weather, and it just sort of wore on me. That's Ken Getz, who is musical director for the many musicals Sierra Stages presented. And we talked to Ken on the phone for a kind of exit interview. 
you had both put so much passion and dedication into creating this thing called Sierra Stages. How hard was it to leave that behind? It's hard. I mean, it's still difficult. I'm still on the board. Peter's trying to just stand back, but I'm still on the board. It's hard, but you know, after 14 years of doing it, it was time to retire. It's exhausting. Basically, both of us spent full time all year for 14 years doing this thing, and that was enough. We retired once. It was time to retire again. So what do you think you accomplished in creating Sierra Stages? We accomplished, I think, creating a place where actors and musicians could practice their craft in front of an audience, giving people opportunities to do that. And if audiences enjoyed what they saw, so much the better. But I really saw it as a way to give other performers a chance and a place to do a good musical theater. And how do you think these two small towns in this fairly small county support such a vibrant art scene? It is pretty astonishing. You look at In Concert Sierra and and Music in the Mountains and Cats and Legacy and, and Sierra State and, and all this, these theater and arts groups, and, and they're all pretty well supported. You know, things do go in cycles, and this may be an upcycle for the arts, but it seems uh, pretty well supported. What shows are you proudest of? Oh, that's so hard. Um, I, I, I was happiest with, I, mean, I can't say this, I like all my children. There are certainly some... Uh, Avenue Q, Spelling Bee, Sweeney Todd, Cabaret, and Chicago were both great fun as well. And there were some great, great plays. One of my favorites was The Cripple of Inishman, which, which Sharon Winnegar directed. Loved that show. We did Lend Me a Tenor back in 2010 that Diane Federley, who is no longer with us, directed. I mean, almost every show, I would say, was my favorite. That's our newscast for Monday, May 8th. Listen to anything you may have missed at our website, kvmr.org, and connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners, carrying remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support, serving Northern California counties from San Francisco to Lake Tahoe. Milkmancompany.com. Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Tuesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.